0: The following podcast contains the use of bad language and some of the content may not be suitable for young people. Hi, I'm Dan McHugh and this is mchugh a show where I explore ways to make life a little more interesting. Together we're going to explore a whole bunch of things and hopefully I'm going to convince you to ponder ideas that you wouldn't normally allow yourself to consider. But just stay with me because I'm going to make this as entertaining as possible and I'm going to approach this stuff just like you would with a bit of skepticism but mostly I'm going to be a cynical asshole and make wisecracks the whole time. You'll see that empty when you left it far behind. Now open your mind to me. Please. Think about this. You're inside your head 100% of the time. So really, it's just you inside that enclosed space, alone. Alone. Try to think of that space as being more like a secret garden, a walled garden. And you need to tend that garden. You can even expand that garden. Kind of like renovating a house or playing gardenscapes on your iPhone, but more meaningful. What if I told you your inner world can be as expansive and amazing as you want it to be? In each episode of this podcast, I'm going to take you on a small journey. I'll try to start each show with something pretty normal, but similar to a thought process. I'm going to jump around, and we're going to end up talking about something a little more out there or fantastic. In this episode, I'm pretty much going to tell you why you should talk to plants. Welcome to McUniverse. If you have a golf ball-sized consciousness... When you read a book, you'll have a golf ball size understanding. When you look out, a golf ball size awareness. And when you wake up in the morning, a golf ball size wakefulness. But if you could expand that consciousness, then you read the book, more understanding. You look out, more awareness. And when you wake up, more wakefulness. It's consciousness. And there's an ocean of pure, vibrant consciousness inside each one of us. I was at a friend of mine's house recently as we've got a group of guys who meet up and go and have burgers every fortnight. And he happened to have some scales there. So I jumped on and was surprised to see that I'd hit the 100 kilogram mark. That's more than 200 pounds. And at five foot nine, 175 centimeters, I'm heavy. A heavy weight, even. If I was a professional boxer, I would be fighting against people the size of Mike Tyson.
1: I'm just ferocious. I want your heart. I want to eat his children. Praise be to Allah.
0: Anyway, this got me thinking. I should do something about it. You know, lose some weight. So I started having a look around at different diets and programs, you know, to shred some of this extra mass I'm carrying around. And I noticed there are a lot of people getting into a diet that consists of only eating meat. And you may have heard of it. There are some carnivorous diet figureheads such as Sean Baker, Michaela Peterson and her father, Jordan Peterson, who've been interviewed on uh, the Joe Rogan podcast. Anyway, if you want to look further into it, there's some names to look up. People are claiming that going on this diet kind of resets your body and cures all sorts of problems, including obesity, depression, arthritis, skin conditions, hair loss, the list goes on. It just so happens that a guy I know, we're calling him Gary, is on this diet. Gary's already an interesting guy, but I can't actually tell you too much about him because he wants to remain anonymous. I went to visit him to chat about this meat-only diet and to see if the hype was true.
1: Let me just start by saying for well, over 20 years, I was suffering from very severe and debilitating depression. It knocked me. There were times when the depression came very close to killing me. More recently, I've started to explore concepts of how I can get myself out of this depressed state of mind, this this perpetual negativity. Recently, I just came across a, a talk by Michaela Peterson, she's the the daughter of the internet sensation Jordan Peterson, who explained how she got rid of arthritis and depression by going on an all-meat diet, a carnivore diet. And I thought, what the hey? So I started exploring the possibility and took at least a month of research before I made the decision to give it a try. And I was gobsmacked at the results. Within a week, uh, I noticed that I had gout in my foot the gout cleared up. I didn't attribute that immediately to the diet, but it went away. I also had asthma, arthritis in my knees, and of course, the ever-present depression. So within a week, the symptoms of all of these conditions started to alleviate remarkably. So um, I persisted with it. And um, no more, no signs of arthritis. The gout's completely gone. The asthma's gone completely. I have no signs of asthma whatsoever. You would never even know I was an asthmatic. And also the state of mind is the most critical thing for me. Definitely. I am not as negative, not as perpetually negative in my thinking now.
0: So Gary was having some really positive results from his carnivorous diet, but I haven't got any problems with gout or asthma. I wanted to know more about the weight loss side of things. Does getting on an all meat diet actually work for weight loss?
1: the old joke about not getting sunburn on your dick is, is a, a important one. I probably, my old fellow probably hasn't, haven't seen it for such a long time, you know, but now it's mostly gone. There's still a little bit of a gut there, but not, not as much as it was. And the other one is the man boobs. So it's not so much a frontal gyne type man boobs, but it's a, the ones under your armpit. They're reducing as well. And that's the one I find most pleasant. The, um, Again, the idea of this carnivore diet is to get your body to produce hormones in a much better balance. So it was a low testosterone state that I was in. When you have too much body fat, you, you start to produce more female hormones, estrogen and, and um, progesterone even. you know These are normal substances within a male body, but when it's too high for a male and the testosterone is too low, it turns into a very unhealthy state for men.
0: Every person I mention this meat diet to automatically brings up fiber and how it would probably make you constipated. So I asked Gary if his meatathon had caused any irregularities.
1: There was a period in when I first started, perhaps two weeks into it, where I went through loose stools. But after this two-week period, the fecal matter started to solidify, and but I found that. I don't crave, my mind is not craving sugary foods. I used to love sugar. I was a, a carb addict, crave things like pastas. I mean, crave it, really, really You know, be drawn towards it. And I think since this purging and the changing of the gut microbiome, there's no longer any issue with that. I, I don't even think about carbs now, whereas before I was obsessed by them.
0: Before I start talking about my own sugar obsession, I thought I should just quickly touch on what Gary has referred to as the microbiome. So you might be a microbiome expert, but I just wanna make sure everyone else is on the same page. So the human microbiome is the collection of trillions of microbes living in and on the human body. It consists of about a thousand different bacterial species that reside in the gut, mouth, and vagina, and also on the skin. So what you eat will feed that bacteria, and some of these bacteria will thrive on more sugary foods. A drastic diet change, like what Gary has been through, will most likely affect that. For me, I know that each and every night there are microbial armies waiting to be fed. And if you listen closely to my stomach, you can probably hear the chanting. So if the only option is meat, what does Gary's daily food intake look like?
1: It could be a steak and eggs. It could be some bacon and some kidneys or liver. By the way, I've, I love liver. That's my new carb. I'm addicted to liver. Anyway, um, I drink water and perhaps a black coffee at some stage. But that's all. Gary
0: has been talking about hormonal changes. For example, more testosterone. And he's also mentioned bacterial changes in his gut. So I asked him if he'd noticed any changes in his behavior or if he felt more aggressive.
1: I will say this, there's been a great change in personality since starting this. Um, I I credit it to the change in testosterone levels. I've become much more masculine in my outlook, much more, what's the word aggressive? I don't know if, more assertive, I think is probably a better way of putting it, in, in my beliefs. I don't put up with other people's silliness I don't, um, what does it suffer fools gladly Mm. Uh, maybe it's an age related thing as well but I've become a grumpy old man in in some ways (laughs) more joyous in my own self, less tolerant of of others that's all Uh, it's this idea of indifference, not giving a fuck, no fucks given to towards uh, other people's opinion of me, don't care
0: Gary seems to be in a not-care state of mind, but he's actually quite a thoughtful person. So I wanted to know what he thought about the environmental and ethical impacts of a meat-only diet.
1: We've destroyed this planet. We've destroyed ecosystems right throughout. There are far too many human beings on the planet, far too many greedy human beings. To think that we can sustain this forever is just utterly ridiculous. And, mm. and getting people to eat plants and thinking that's going to somehow solve the world's problems is, is just fantasy. So uh, in the meantime, I'm quite happy to consume meat. I um, prefer meat that is sourced from if animal meat, if it's not prepared properly, is unhealthy. For example, the difference between caged eggs from a chicken and and free range eggs, the amount of omega-3 fatty acids is, is measurably different. The free range eggs are healthier for you. The same as game meat, kangaroo is much better for you than cattle or pig that are produced that that are made in pens. You know, it'd be nice if if we could interact better with nature to let these animals live their lives and then hunt them in a sustainable manner so that we could maximise. But the truth of the matter is, when you go on a carnivore diet, you eat less. Period. It's not just a matter of eating less uh, meat; it's just you eat less. So perhaps it is sustainable in some ways, if we could manage to, I can only speak for myself, they say that this carnival, changing carnival, does not have the same impact on everyone. I'm probably one of a very small percentage of people that has reacted so positively to it. I don't know, there has been no longitudinal studies done on this, so we don't really know the full, full impacts of it. But I, yeah, I think it's just garbage that we can save the planet by becoming vegans. That's something some vegan had come up with, seriously.
0: It seems Gary is not so happy with the vegans. So I thought I'd better speak to one and hear what they had to say about this meat-only diet. You may have heard of James Aspie. He's an Australian animal rights activist and lecturer. A righteous vegan known for remaining silent for an entire year to raise awareness on animal cruelty. As you might guess, James isn't a big fan of the carnivorous diet.
2: Um, Well, I think that what we should be looking at when it comes to diet is what keeps us healthy in the most ethical and environmentally sustainable way. And there's no way that the entire world could live on a meat-only diet if we were trying to do some sort of environmentally friendly meat production like free-range farming or something like that, which would have a lesser impact uh, potentially than the devastation caused by factory farms. There's too many people on earth to sustain a diet like that. So it would be for a privileged few. The vegan diet, a plant-based diet, it requires 16 times less land, it requires 13 times less water, 11 times less oil, It produces far less greenhouse gas emissions. It gives you every single essential nutrient that you need. You are less likely to have nutrient deficiencies on a plant-based diet. You reduce your chances of developing the biggest killers, including heart disease, cancers, diabetes, obesity, osteoporosis. And you are likely to live a long, healthy life. So it doesn't make any sense to me why we would continue to breed animals into existence, feeling sentient, aware, emotional, incredible beings, breed them into an existence where they are enslaved from birth, often mutilated and tortured in different ways as standard legal practice, and then murdered inside a facility that we call abattoirs or slaughterhouses, which causes extreme suffering, extreme fear, pain, separations from families, all kinds of different cruelties. Why would we consume such a violent and destructive diet when we have such a better alternative available to us? It is totally crazy to me.
0: James had a lot of great facts and data to share on the impacts of meat and food agriculture, and I just can't argue with those. But he did mention the idea that animals are sentient. And he kind of conveyed that we shouldn't eat animals because of that sentience. The point of this podcast is to make people think further about the idea of consciousness. I proposed to him the idea that plants may very well be sentient. I was impressed that he was willing to take on the idea and run with it. But he didn't fully buy into the idea of plant consciousness.
2: I I also think we shouldn't needlessly kill plants. I don't think we should go around just killing plants for fun. I don't think we should... Eat Excessively, I think we should Cause the least amount of harm Even to plants And you sure, err on the side of caution You do need to eat something though And I think killing for survival Is a fair reason to kill So it makes sense to just Still cause the least amount of harm And I think if anyone's trying to argue That it's more unethical To kill plants as opposed to animals Because they believe that Plants suffer even more than someone from an animal species does, then I'd have to see some pretty convincing evidence because from what I know in my own personal life experience and what I've seen in regards to plant consciousness, it doesn't even seem close. But I'd be open to the possibility that plants are more aware and complicated than I am aware of. I think it would be extremely hard to make a case that it would be an equally unethical thing to kill a plant and kill a sentient being.
0: Before we move on, I just want to convey my goal isn't to convince people to eat more meat or eat less plants. James asked for some convincing evidence of plant consciousness. So I sought out an evolutionary ecologist named Dr. Monica Gagliano. She's a plant researcher and author of the book Thus Spoke the Plant. According to Monica, who, by the way, is a vegan, The life experience of plants and their consciousness is no different to ours.
3: I actually don't think I'm working on consciousness of plants. I'm working on um, looking at how they behave and how they express themselves through those behaviors to learn more about who they are. Um, I have a problem with the concept of consciousness just because I don't think that plants have a consciousness that is different than mine (laughs) and so if I need to prove plants consciousness it's almost like I'm already deciding that there is something else and you know like we are struggling to even work our own consciousness. I think that's a bigger harder question to address at least scientifically.
0: So what about self-awareness?
3: Yeah self-awareness If it means like, you know, being actually aware of self compared to other, then there is plenty of places in science, in plant science, where beautiful experiments have been done that have shown that, yeah, plants of course know exactly who is growing around them, whether they are, you know, friends, foes, whether they should be uh, encouraged or discouraged, and of course what can be done about those bits of information to improve your own life. So in that context, I don't really see uh, self-awareness as a question anymore. (laughs) We automatically think, that oh, but plants don't have uh, eyes. How can they see, right? But um, just like for our eyes, they are receptors, that they are photoreceptors because they are specifically working to receive and detect lights. And plants have plenty of those. And actually, they have very specific photoreceptors. Some you know, are specifically looking at red light, for example. Some are specifically looking at blue light or green. They can tell whether, oh, I've got someone growing next to me. Or it could be a fence, you know. And so the fence is not moving and it's OK. And maybe I grow over it. And I detect it as, oh, here is a, a possible structure, if I'm a climber, for example, that I can use. But if the frequency, the, the ratio is changing, for example, and that might be more indicative of someone growing next to you, then it's like, oh, I have a neighbor. And this neighbor could be someone friendly, and, but maybe not. And if the, the frequency changes are significant to the plant to de- indicate that the other is growing really fast, that could be like, oh, I might get overshadowed by this one. And so the plant in question might change its own way of growing to compensate. And and we see very often plants growing very spindly and long and tall. And, and you're like, why is this plant growing like that? Of course, often it's because there is not enough light. And that's exactly what the same strategy is what they would use when they are overshadowed by other plants. Like there is not enough light or I'm risking a situation where there will be not enough light. So I better grow fast, and even if that comes to a cost or maybe grow a bit spindly, it's better than not having light at the end of the day. So detecting light, which is just one of the many signals that plants are aware of, it's just a, a really good example of what plants do every day, all the time.
0: So plants can detect light, sure. We know they use light to create energy through a process named photosynthesis, and that's how they grow. It's not like they're talking to each other. Or is it?
3: If talking means sharing information, and sharing information potentially via signal like acoustic signals, which is what we are doing now, then I'm not implying it. We know that plants emit their own sounds, and they are very selective in the sounds that they are listening to, whether they are responding to specific frequency because they are really interested in those and they can hear the others, or whether they're interested in those and they don't care about the others, those are questions that are still very open. But for example, my own research showed that plants can detect and locate water by listening to the sound of water moving underground. Other colleagues in the US demonstrated how a plant can listen to a neighbor being chewed on, and the sound of the chewing enemy by itself, without the presence of the actual animal chewing, can trigger the plants into a response of like, okay, uh, there is a problem here, I know this sound is not good news, and I'm going to start up my defense mechanism so that I'm ready. And there was an even more recent study done by colleagues in Israel, and uh, in that group, what they demonstrated, which I think is really elegant You know, imagine a a nice bush with lots of flowers. And of course, we know that plants and pollinators have a very special tight relationship. And so imagine this bee approaching, you know, the plant is listening to the buzzing of the bee from the distance, because of course, sound, that's why sound is so good. Sound travels really well and at a distance, and so even before the bee is anywhere close to the plant, the plant knows that the bees is approaching. And he, within like a matter of seconds, it increases the level of sugars in the nectar of its flowers so that it looks much more attractive and say, like, hey, I know that there are many bushes with lots of flowers around here, but you want to come to me. And so if you are an animal, you can move around. And if there is a sound, for example, that is uh, not good news, you can move away but for a plant, because they do move, but they move at a very different time scale, to detect those bits of information even earlier is in a way is even more of a priority than if you were an animal because you are not going to move very fast. So you want to have the information of what's happening around you like right away as quickly as possible so that you can engage in the defenses or whatever it is that you need to do as quickly as possible.
0: From what Monica's saying, plants are obviously very good listeners. But it seems they're also pretty good talkers. Dr. Gagliano and her colleagues have collected data to show that plants talk to each other through a series of clicks and purrs and this helps them to detect friends and foes. Now earlier when I was speaking to James Aspie, he spoke about animals as sentient beings. I think we're pretty close to identifying that plants are self-aware and have senses pretty similar to ours. It's just that they're totally different forms of life to us. I have no idea what James's spiritual beliefs are, but when we talk about sentience and consciousness, as Dr. Gagliano mentioned earlier, there always seems to be this underlying idea of there being something other, something like a soul.
3: The question of the soul it's an interesting one especially for science because it was of course a very discussed topic for much of our history and then he has become no longer discussable for the last few hundred years or less but it was the core of what is this thing is what's in here who is it that is doing all of these things and, and of course is connected to the, the concept of consciousness and all these other words that we use to trying to point to the same thing, which really is the part that we don't understand. <laughs> so we call it consciousness because we don't know what it is. Or we call it soul because we don't know what it is. I often find that when people refer to the soul of consciousness, what they're really pointing to is life. they are talking about life <laughs> and something alive. And uh, which of course is also a slippery blurry concept itself, especially at this stage where we are creating very uh, different hybrid combinations of living.
0: Whilst making this podcast, I had plenty of conversations about plant consciousness with people and the idea that it's some kind of new age spiritual belief is always brought up. But Monica is collecting data, like a good scientist would. The other thought I had was, within certain circles, and as a generalisation, I'd say these circles are full of New Age spiritualists, the concepts of tree spirits, davers and entities, they get talked about a lot as though they're these benevolent creatures who are here to do good. If they're sentient beings to the point they're like humans, some of us aren't very nice at all. Why wouldn't plants be the same?
3: I have issues with New Age spiritualism because yep. this is not what I'm doing. Yep. And I need to make that very clear because I don't just borrow some superficially understood scientific concepts, especially from physics, right? Because you talk to the quantum physicists, the real guys, yep. that they are doing the science, and they don't understand it. So it's, again, the commodification of ideas, yeah, and, and suddenly like, oh, everyone is an expert in quantum physics, and if you plunk quantum physics next to consciousness, then you explained something. So I find that the New Age discourse is not really a discourse, but can be detrimental, actually, for the advancement of this area of understanding, and I'm not talking about like that only science has the upper hand to understand this. But in general, as humans, if we are really keen to understand who we are and what life is, then we should allow for some of these easy off the shelf concepts, <laughs> uh, fast food ideologies to go. There is a tendency of idolizing these others, and, uh, and they're there to save us or they're there to help us or they're there. And for my experience, some are. And I was very lucky to, I feel very lucky that I was uh, working with some of these. And definitely they guided me, they helped me. They also told me off (laughs) when I was looking in the wrong direction. But I also, I have met plants which definitely are not for me to engage with. So like with any other relationship, some people, I don't believe that there are some plants or people in general, plant people, human people, who are nasty by nature or good by nature. You know, we have all of it in us. And some people are bound to become our friends and others just like we really don't get along. (laughs) And we don't have to, right? Mm -hmm. So I find that some plants as well, like as uh, the plant people, as the human people, um, you know, some relationships are beautiful and they are the relationship for you. And other relationships are definitely not. And so, uh, in my experience, I had uh, both plants telling me off to just like, go away. We're not talking to you. And in other cases where a plant was like, yeah, I would really like to talk to you. And I'm like, I don't trust you.
0: So, so how are you talking to these plants on this level? Is that with use of entheogens or is it through meditation or is it All just by it. spending time with the All plants? Of it.
3: All of it. So, um, And that's the thing. Um, there is actually a recent revival of the antigenic approaches. Last year, I went to Mexico and I spoke to uh, some of the Virarica people, the Wichol, which are the, the carrier of the peyote, right? Uh, yeah. And this was like, really deep in the Sierra Madre of Mexico in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and um, these are people who have escaped the invasion of the Spaniards in Mexico. And that's why they live in such remote areas still. And they have managed somehow to maintain for way over 5,000 years a tradition and a custom that is, I would say, almost untouched. So it's amazing in, you know, in that context. And, and one of the things that I was very curious about was like, so why coming out now? Why bring the peyote out to the world and why even talking to me why, why am I allowed to be here you know uh, because I kind of represent the other and the answer is quite simple it's like, because the plant asked to and I was like okay and I understand how that asking can happen because yeah. it happened to me and I was like okay so why why would the plant say it's time you know for me to go out and, uh, and it was, again, the answer was very simple. It was like, uh, if, if the rest of the world doesn't know about me and doesn't know about what I can do to heal this madness, <laughs> especially of the Western mind, we're all going to go down. We're all going to disappear. And so it's, it's almost kind of like a self-preservation thing.
0: Monica is talking about plants as though she's met them and developed a relationship with them. And I guess for some of you, this is where you won't allow yourself to further entertain this idea of plants having sentience or consciousness, the way we think humans do. If that's the case, I ask you to consider what your own consciousness actually is. And what does that mean? So maybe set yourself some time to do that later, because first, I want to bombard you with some more ideas. If plants are sentient or conscious, what if they're smarter than us? What if the crops we slave over are actually the slave masters? Have you ever thought about the American obsession with corn? It's very important to their economy, it's highly subsidised by the government, and it's been reported that a third of food products on supermarket shelves in the USA have some form of corn product in them. Animals bred for consumption as meat, they're also fed corn. Corn is now used to power the country with a huge percentage of crops being used to make ethanol. In the middle of the 20th century, they developed high fructose corn syrup, and if you think about it, it's basically the crack cocaine version of corn. If corn has some kind of higher consciousness, is it possible that corn somehow controls the minds of the masses?
3: First of all, this idea that plants might be like controlling us was very beautifully narrated by Michael Pollan. In his book, *The Botany of Desire*, which is a few years old, and this concept of like plants using us to their own means and for their own agenda—it's an idea that has been there for a while, and and it is totally possible, as much as not. <laughs> and I guess the the real answer is uh, we don't know. My feeling is that corn, in particular, because if you look at the plant species that have been so abused. By humans and transformed and mass produced, but beyond like belief, really showing a high level of madness. (laughs) They are all plants, like tobacco is another one. They are all very sacred plants traditionally, like corn for the US in particular. Is such a precious, sacred plant. And uh, there are stories of the corn people.
0: Did she say corn people?
1: Part of the reason I'm here is that I know how to take a joke.
0: I mean, Donald Trump does kind of look like a piece of corn. I know people like to say carrot, but it's pretty corny. Stop it.
3: So I find it interesting that the, the sacredness of these plants and the most profane way of using them have collided and come together and somehow it's almost like the plant is um again this is just an idea but like somehow the plant is like okay i'm here to stay with you i can nurture you but if you are going to try to abuse me well abuse will come back
0: plants are masters of chemical warfare they're able to produce store and release compounds known as allelochemicals and their toxic substances that manage to inhibit the growth and development of nearby plants. As Dr. Gagliano suggested, if we treat plants badly, they may very well treat us badly back. Could this be an explanation for the rise in gluten and wheat intolerance we're seeing among humans? Are they already fighting back?
3: Let's talk about the humans, for example. When we put people under very repressive systems, eventually they, you build enough pressure for that system to either collapse onto itself or explode, but it breaks. And somehow it breaks out through that suppression into something new. So I don't know if this is the case or not, but uh, it's possible, I think, to consider that plants like wheat have uh, been put into a very under-pressure system. And like with all this system, eventually they might rebel and break through, free, out, and in a way they're doing it in the most subtle of ways, but really not that different from what we have been doing for, for centuries as well, by poisoning. <laughs> in an evolutionary context, this would make total sense. We have plenty of examples, which don't necessarily involve the human, but another animal and uh, where the animal and the plant are constantly doing this dance of like, oh, I'm going to eat you. And then if I eat too much of you, then you're going to cause me pain. And then, so I'll stop eating you so much, but then you change and then I change and, and you keep chasing each other. It's called, I think, the red queen.
0: So it seems like we're messing with plants and they're fighting back. But why does it matter if we have a good or bad relationship with plants? I mean, we need to eat something. What's the bigger picture message here? What do we take away from knowing how conscious plants are? Here's what Monica thinks.
3: What well, I have been learning through this process is the fact that the only real thing that we are missing about life, and that's why we're behaving as we are, especially at this time, you need to understand that you as the individual don't really exist in the sense that you and the environment around you, which involves everything that is around you, it's you. So you you can't just think of yourself as the you and take care only of this, because uh, if you only take care of this, you're missing the more extended version of you. And even worse, if you don't take care of that, you're actually harming that you that you care so much about and in that sense it becomes a very metaphysical conversation as well because uh, i guess is what we have read uh, in the big ancient text forever about this idea of the oneness consciousness or the you know like in buddhism and hinduism you have all this concept of like there is only one and the multiple and they are the same i think this is where maybe our mind i'm hoping that this is where we are going to evolve to next. The understanding and the appreciation that what feels like a paradox, what feels like, but the plant is the plant and I'm the human. That paradox of uh, diversity is no longer a paradox. It's like, I can be a, a diverse being from the plant as well as at the same time knowing that we are one and the same. And so by knowing that I take care of myself as in the plant as well as I take care of the individual expression of me as the human. And that would be a very different world.
0: (laughs) Opening up to the idea that plants are conscious might be too hard a leap for some people. I think people struggle with the idea that the meat we consume comes from sentient beings. But you can at least acknowledge that plants are living and they're a lot more complex than you might have previously thought. My feeling is that we should all be aware of the fact that every time we eat, whether it's an animal or a plant, we should be acknowledging that they have given their life for ours. Look, I think this is a much bigger subject than can be given justice in a podcast like this. So if you wish to discuss this further or send me your thoughts, please get in touch. You can find me online or send an email to dan at Please don't forget to hit subscribe. Hit five stars in the rating section of iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell all your friends and family. Also, I can't thank my guests enough. Thank you to Gary, James Aspie, and Dr. Monica Gagliano. James Aspie is worth seeking out online as his discussions around veganism are interesting and inspiring, Dr. Gagliano has an amazing book named Thus Spoke the Plant. I'd recommend having a read, and you can also find that online. I also need to give gratitude and thanks to Lauren Catherine, whose voice you can hear in the music theme, Jeremy Wilmot, Sam Iken, Anthony Garvin, Nick Rouse, Francis Berry, Sophie Fong, and everyone else who's helped along the way. Make sure you join me for the next episode of McUniverse, where we look at sleep, and we also venture into the world of dreams. Catch you next time.